Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Nadja West, the Surgeon General and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Medical Command. Today, we talk about how to manage a workforce of 130,000 people, autonomy and micromanaging within a military command structure, and the importance of what you say on your very first day in a new leadership role. Thank you for joining us, General West. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be able to, to spend some time with you today. Let's start with the very basics. Tell us what exactly you are in charge of. There's a lot of transformation going on, but currently I'm in charge of all of the uh, medical um, assets in our United States Army. So to kind of give you a context on that, um, Army Medicine is comprised of about 130,000 individuals. We've got military in all three components. So that means in the active component, our Guard and Reserve colleagues, and we also have, well, a number of phenomenal uh, Department of the Army civilians, about 30,000 plus Department of the Army civilians. And so those are all the professionals that are stationed all over the world um, in, in various um, aspects. So, of course, when you think of healthcare, you think of the military treatment facilities or hospitals. Mm-hmm. We have um, a lot of, of course, many of those around the world. But we also have research and development um, within Army medicine. We've got a training and education platform where we train all of our medical, uh, military occupational specialties. And then we also have, you know, public health, veterinary and dental. We've got a a whole uh, host of medical assets um, all throughout the globe. That is a very complex brief and a lot of employees, basically. And and how many patients are you serving? Well, so our beneficiary population is that that actually get care in military treatment facilities is, uh, you know, several million. I mean, within the entire health enterprise, that's Army, Navy, and Air Force, there's about 9 million eligible beneficiaries. And so that's in our hospitals. What we also treat and take care of and are responsible for all of our soldiers. And so mm-hmm. we've got in the Army, uh, if you look at all the components, uh, again, active, reserve, and guard, it's about a million um, soldiers. And so we're responsible for making sure that they're ready from a medical perspective so that they have all of the right immunizations, that they have all of their preventive type of uh, care um, when they're first uh, entering in, you know, when the new recruits get all their vaccines, um, if you get injured, you know, we make sure that we have the uh, right uh, specialties to take care of you and to rehab you back to health and everything in between. So one thing I'm always uh, boggled by and curious about for someone who's running that large and that complex an institution is what are the outcomes you're striving for and how do you think about them? It's establishing a vision that everyone can um, understand what our purpose is, you know, what we're for. We know what we do in each one of our areas. We have 120 military occupational specialties. And we all each do different things, but we are collectively for one thing. And that's uh, making sure that we uh, provide the best care possible and take care of our, you know, soldiers, specifically um, on the battlefield. That's, again, that's why we exist in the wartime setting. That's why you have an army or a military health system to take care of our our service members during, you know, during a conflict. And then everything that leads up to that. And so that everyone's ready to go, not only the soldiers are healthy, that the providers, the medical professionals are ready to do whatever they're asked to, to surge in, in any environment that we want. And so having great commanders, subordinate commanders to kind of perpetuate and to kind of cascade down that vision is extremely important. So we have a, an Army Medicine vision and campaign plan mm-hmm. um, that's written, um, it's accessible to everyone, so they know what our 
you know, what we're for and what the what the goals are. Is that something you had to develop or put into place when you came into the role or was it in place and you evolved it? How did you think about setting that strategic vision? So it's a combination of both. So, you know, Army Medicine has been around since 1775. So we've been evolving and it's kind of like a long, you know, relay race where you pass the baton from one uh, leader to the next. And so you build upon the great uh, work that the predecessors have done and then depending on what the strategic environment is, is we take it in a different direction. So on day one, I actually had a day one brief um, back in December of 15 when I took uh, the position as the Surgeon General and Commanding General of MedCom. And then we developed our, you know, together collaboratively with my senior leaders what our vision, uh, what my vision was kind of, you know, operationalize that or articulate the way to articulate it so everyone would understand and then we went through lines of effort with our commanders of how do I, we operationalize that vision. Mm-hmm. So my vision is that uh, Army Medicine, the totality of us, are we're premier, meaning that we're the, we're the one that people think of as the best when they think of you know, healthcare delivery in any venue. Expeditionary. And so that's a term that's not, you don't hear that in a healthcare organization necessarily, but that's a facet of what we do that no one else really can. When the 82nd Airborne Division goes, for example, and they need a medical asset to go with them, we have to be ready. We, mm-hmm. we don't get weeks and weeks. Some of them within 72 hours have to be wheels up and supporting their unit, you know, some of the smaller units. Um, but we have to have that mindset, not just with the, the ones that get up and go, but those who support them. They have to be ready to surge and flex and think of things differently to come up with a solution if, if required. So we're premier expeditionary and globally integrated. We can't do it by ourselves. We have to be integrated with our sister services, with our international partners where need be, and in the virtual environment, which is really important, um, you know, how do we integrate and use capability all over the globe? So that's what we are, you know, premier expeditionary globally integrated to address the challenges of today and tomorrow. One thing you've spoken about is the kind of difference in how authority translate into action in medicine versus in the military. When a doctor has a patient, how do they get the patient to take the medicine or do the exercise or go get the test or whatever the outcome is that the doctor desires? That's one set of strategies. You know, the military sounds like it has another set of strategies that's much more about kind of direct communication and clearly understood lines of authority. How do you think about navigating those different uh, ways of translating authority into action? There's elements of both. And you can actually, um, you know, change the language a little bit uh, in, in both to indicate what we do. And I'll, I'll give an example of that. There's something called a military decision-making process, which is very deliberate. You know, first you identify the problem. Then you come up with, you know, courses of action. Then you weight the courses of action. And then you make a decision. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more deal than that. Well, when you're a provider or a medical person, you do the same thing. So identify the problem. A person comes to you with a chief complaint. And then you develop courses of action. So you do things, you know, do the analysis. So you order blood tests, you do x-rays, you try to figure out what's the most likely diagnosis. And then you use evidence to, to kind of come up with that. And then courses of action. And there's several things in your differential diagnosis. You, it could be this condition, it could be this, it could be that. And then based upon, you know, what you have, you wait which one is the most likely, and then you come up with a diagnosis, and then you have a treatment plan. Mm-hmm. So again, it's not the, M- the MDMP military decision-making process by name, but you're doing exactly the tenets of that. And the communication of it, I think, is really important because, you know, the patient is part of the decision team. And in the military, it seems hierarchical, but your people are also part of that decision team as well, because you have a vision. I have a vision. I have, you know, here's the things that we need to do. Um, But you rely on your people to give input on the best way for that to occur. 
And in healthcare, we, we do that. I mean, it's really important to have, in the military, it's a mission command. You identify what your intent is, the commander's intent, and you leave it up to the subordinate commanders to understand what you mean by that intent and then to operationalize it. You won't necessarily tell them, I want you to do it exactly this way. You give them parameters. They know your intent, and then you let them go. Because usually if you are too constrained in what you tell them to do, you're going to miss out on some really very creative, innovative, um, and diverse suggestions to get to that point. But there's parameters because it's like, well, we can't debate all day. If, if we need to you know, take that hill, for example, we're not going to sit there and debate it. It's like, uh, and we're not going to say, well, who wants to go first? Or it's, So sometimes you have to be very deliberate, but there are other times when you can actually, and you get great, uh, I think, solutions if you open it up and let, let your, your teams do that. I feel like I've read about that. Obviously, you don't want leaders who are saying, go to the top of that hill and do this set of things with a set of military apparatus. And unstated is the point is to take that hill, take the hill the best way you know how, because, of course, circumstances could change. And what you want is for people to know the thing you want them to achieve, not the actions you want them to take directly. I'm just curious to hear more about how you think about hierarchy and buy-in. I mean, in a way, what you're saying is that I think the military system of authority for people who are outside of it feels very direct and you know who's in charge and when they tell you to do a thing you do it like that's sort of the stereotype of it from outside but it sounds like what you're saying is that actually all of that focus on how you actually give people the tools to be effective because you have to because of the heightened circumstances that you're in you really have to focus on that question of intent and on what you're what uh, communicating the goal rather than the tasks. Absolutely. And I think it's, uh, and I was just talking to my team about this earlier, is uh, precision in language. Mm-hmm. Because you have to be precise when you say a thing um, that everybody knows what you mean when you say that. And I think in the military, it's easier for us uh, to a certain extent because uh, we grow up in a culture. From early on, you're inculcated in Army values in techniques, procedures, tactics. Um, Terminology. From, too, absolutely. Right? And so I think that helps because, um, you know, in industry, there's a lot of fluidity in and out, but usually, and then there is in the military as well, but for those who stay long-term, there's a progression and a process. There's not a lot of people who come in from the side. If you're going to be a, you know, in the, in the line unit, a division commander, they don't hire someone from the corporate world to come take over a, a military division. You usually have to have been a a platoon leader, a company commander, battalion commander, brigade commander. So there's a succession that you have. So everyone at that level has a common experience within the military system that got there. So there's, I think there's an ease and understanding intent because you all grew up in that culture with that same, you know, language and uh, understanding. So when someone says, okay, I need you to do this kind of maneuver, Everyone kind of knows what that is because they've been doing that throughout their career. So it's not someone that's coming from outside to say, well, what exactly do, do you mean by that? So I think we, we have a head start in that everybody is kind of steeped in a, a base of knowledge. And then you can kind of you know shape how you would operationalize that intent based upon that understanding. What tactics do you use when you encounter someone who seems skeptical about pursuing that intent, whether it's an example from your past of a specific patient who wouldn't do X or Y or Z or something with kind of your larger current, more administrative brief? I think transparency, having a track record of being a truthful leader and an open leader. And, um, you know, it's one of those things I was taught, you know, my mom always said, it's always easier to tell the truth because then you don't have to remember what you told different people. And it's, and you can tell your story the same if you have to be authentic in what you believe. And and then br- try to bring them along. I'll give you an example. I learned in uh, when I was in, in family medicine, 
Um, there's a certain medication, you know, a tricyclic antidepressant that can work in back pain. And so uh, just because of the mechanism in certain dosage, lower dosage treats low, low back pain. And if you don't tell the patient that up front, right, give them all the tools and information, then trust is going to be not there. Because if you were just to say, hey, take this medication, you'll feel better. And they go and look it up and they're like, oh, it's an antidepressant. They must think I'm crazy. And they don't, I really don't have back pain. And so then when you try to explain after the fact, saying, oh, no, this really works in low doses, You've lost them because you didn't. You weren't upfront with them, and so once you tell them, look, if you look this up, it's a it's an antidepressant. Yes, I know. You know, I don't think you're crazy. I know you have back pain, but studies have shown it works in lower doses to treat this, and then they are open for it. So if they find out after the fact, they don't trust you. You know, sometimes people say, well, in a, in a hierarchy, you don't explain, you just tell. In this environment, and then and with the younger generation, you do have to explain. It's like, hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's why. And um, they may not agree with you, and you can't make everyone agree with you. But at least if you if you put the facts out there, you know how you arrived at their decision. You know, kind of sharing your thought processes. That's kind of how I, I my leadership style. I'll, I'll talk out loud, and you know, here's what I'm thinking, type thing. And so there's more of a, a collectiveness of thought, or just kind of opening up. Here's here's how my brain works. So it's pretty transparent. It's kind of scary too if you look. Now. <laughs> but here's what I was thinking to arrive at this decision. And then there could be the give and take. It's like, well, did you think about this? And you might actually learn something. I've learned things when I said, well, here's what I thought um, and how I arrived at this conclusion. And someone will say, well, how about this approach? And you can either say, hmm, that makes sense. Let's try it and be willing to try it. Or if it just doesn't, you can say, well, I thought of that, but because of these constraints, we can't do that right now. And I think if there's that dialogue, that give and take, where people feel that they're at least part of the to, the solution, then I think that um, it makes for more buy-in. And it has to be authentic. You can't just say, okay, what do you think? And then they say it, and then you say, okay, we're going to do this anyway. They they have to feel that they actually even they had a, a shot at potentially changing the, the course, although it may not work out that way. Do you think there has been a broader shift towards a more kind of explanatory type of instruction giving within the military? Or do you think it's particular to your style? Or do you think it's actually much more embedded in military command structure than civilians might realize? I think a little bit of, of all three. I think <laughs> I think um, yeah, there has been an evolution. I was uh, mentioning it at another, for, in another forum you know, when I went to West Point, there were four answers that you had. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. Sir, I didn't understand during your, you know, beast barracks, the first phase. So I have a son now who's a senior. Um, so 30 plus years later, and I was telling him about the four answers that you have to learn, you know, when you get there. And and then he talked, he was telling me about a conversation he was having with his squad leader. And I, I said, conversation? And he's <laughs> like, yes, mom, you know, conversation, you talk and then I talk and then we, you say something, you know, I say something, conversation. I was like, yeah, I know what that is, but that was not how we did things back, back in the day. And the thought was, you know, you take a lot of time and effort to recruit young individuals, especially in a volunteer force where there are options that you don't want to just, you know, they need to be resilient. You need to give them a little bit of a challenge, but um, you have to also... I think they respond more if they understand the why of why they're doing things. And then it's there. I think they're more likely again to come along. So I think there's been an evolution of, you know, just the, hey, don't speak until you're spoken to, to the point where there's a, there's more of an interaction. You're still going to need the discipline, especially what we ask our young people to do, right? They have to be ready to go fight our nation's war. So you want them to be, have some grit, some resilience. So they have to be challenged in order to to gain that. But while you're doing that, there's also the, you know, the side where you can say, okay, now let's sit down and talk about, 
how you would handle this situation. Um, so it's more of an instructive, you know, dialogue back and forth that I think we've evolved to. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. When you were growing up, did you imagine that you would be a general? Absolutely not. What did you think, and and how did you end up as one? I knew I wanted to join the Army because my dad was in uh, for 33 years, absolutely loved it, thought it was the best institution in the world, Um, and and he grew up when it it was segregated. I mean, he joined when it was segregated, but he saw it transition and transform and actually lead society, you know, equal work, equal pay. The Army was, the military was integrated before the rest of society. And so he saw it as an institution that, uh, kind of a learning institution that could be an example. And he said, you, it's leveling because you meet people from all walks of life. And his thought was if there was more of that, it would solve a lot of the world's problems. And my older brothers and sisters joined, so I knew that I wanted to be in the military, the Army specifically. And so then it kind of just evolved from there. I was going to go on an ROTC scholarship just to a regular college. But my brother graduated from West Point in 76, and he said, hey, you know, they're, they're allowing women to uh, attend. So you should consider it. And so that's what kind of got me into the into the you know the West Point uh, realm, and it's kind of been ever since. Just it's it's been a wonderful experience, but I never had a long term. I'm going to be a general someday. I was I was first happy to graduate from West Point. I was I was wondering if I was going to graduate you know from West Point, let alone um, you know serve it at, at these levels. So it was never one of those things where I specifically aspired to. I just wanted to do the best that I could in each job that I was given. And how did uh, medicine come into it? How did you decide to pursue that course through the army? Well, I liked science, and so um, I was telling folks I'm a Star Trek fan, and so Mr. Spock, the science officer, I thought he was really cool and. You know, I wanted to do something in science, but I also like working with people. I'm kind of a people person. And so I thought, a and help people. And so, you know, I can do all the things I love. Wanted to go in the military and then, you know, science and people, you know, um, helping people is a medical field. Mm-hmm. And um, to do that in the Army has just been a, a dream. So that's kind of how that evolved into uh, a... Um, a career in medicine. So you've moved from role to role and sort of taken it one step at a time. But was there a moment at which you kind of looked up and thought, "Oh wow, I'm I'm headed on a leadership track here in a way beyond what I might have conceived when I was just heading off." Do you feel like there was a moment at which you made a conscious choice in that direction, or had a conscious moment of realization? And what was that like? Well, it was really other people telling me. I mean, some mentors that were telling me when you know I'd go to this go to a next job, and they were like, "You realize, I mean." People are sending you a message by sending you to these courses and being selected for, you know, command general staff college. As a physician, usually physicians back in the 90s, it was not a requirement for us to go because of, of uh, the time away from, you know, the clinical practice. And it was just we were on a different track. So very few got selected. So when I got picked up for that, people were like, hey, you should, you should kind of get an idea that you're being t- told that you might have potential to to lead at different levels. You know, my husband was in the military, too. He was always uh, my biggest cheerleader in saying, hey you know, here, take this course or make sure you just take all your courses because you never know what you might want to do. And so kind of like Colin Powell said, you know, luck equals opportunity plus preparation or preparation plus opportunity. So always be prepared. Don't close any doors. So I just wanted to learn about, you know, what the soldiers that I take care of, what their experiences are to have more 
you know, credibility and empathy with them. So when I was at Fort Campbell, I was, you know, the 101st were, you know, by patients. And so understanding what they had to go through was uh, one of the things that was important to me to be a better physician for them. Were there particular folks in who you encountered along the way on your career who you've modeled your own style on, whether positively or negatively, things you saw people doing that you thought, ah, I never thought to do it that way, but that was so meaningful to me and so useful to this mission or experiences you encountered where you're like, well, that was not productive. I will not be doing that. When I was a medical student, there was a, a an internal medicine resident who, I, I, when I had a rotation with her, I said, I want to be like her when I grow up. Because, you know, back then, it, you know, the it's kind of the old way of learning of, you know, the, the medical students gets to do all the scut work and, you know, you've People, you know, yell at you, don't treat you right. That's okay. That's the environment. But she was probably the, the kindest person, very extremely smart and competent. And and she was tough. I mean, she would, you know, make sure that you learned what you needed to learn to take care of patients because that was her job to make sure that you were, were to take care of patients. But she was very kind. And just the way she treated all patients, because sometimes you'd see, you know, indigent patients. And I, I got to be honest, some providers, or they kind of, didn't seem to treat them with the level of, of care that I would think everyone should be treated with. And she was one that just was uh, very empathetic, very kind. And I had the chance of telling her several years later, I was, I was, uh, was at a luncheon here in, in D.C., just to say, hey, 30 years ago when I was a medical student and you were resident, you, you know, you've had an impact and, and a lot of other people. I mean, she's very well known in the community and service to the residents of Washington, D.C., so she hasn't changed a bit. And then throughout my military career, there's been so many individuals that have encouraged me in multiple ways, either directly by making suggestions of how to move forward of, you know, here's some things to think about in your career, or, hey, I observed this, you know, you you might want to, you seem kind of timid, you need to be more forceful. And so they actually gave really good recommendations to me. What are the things you do now differently than when you were first starting out? Some feedback that I I was given early, which helped change my style somewhat. Just to tweak it was uh, the recommendation. Uh, I do like a collaborative style, but sometimes they said, you know, when in charge, take charge. And sometimes if you don't, aren't forceful enough when taking charge, then others will either see that as weakness or see that as a way to say, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to go this way. So not sending a very clear and definitive message early on of, okay, here's my intent. Here's my commander's intent. Here's, you know, kind of laying that out early in my tenure. And so, and that's why, you know, subsequent times now, day one, literally the day afterwards, here's my day one brief, here's what I stand for, here's who I am. And I think that that sends a clearer message so it doesn't leave people kind of figuring out, so so where are we? I'm never going to get it right. I'm sure there are things, I know there are things that I could definitely do better. But I think that was one that uh, some a recommendation from a mentor was, you know, yes, we love it that you, you know, you're collaborative. But it's not a, you know, you're not on a council. You're the commander. And so you need to take charge. It almost sounds like you're saying there's a kind of posture or tone setting approach at the beginning. And then you create a context in which you can have all kinds of collaborative conversations. But those collaborations are effective rather than confusing. That's uh, that's a very good way of, uh, of encapsulating that. And how do you actually do that? Do you like send a memo to everybody? Do you sit down and have a big meeting and say, you know, this is what we're focusing on? Like, what are the actual tactics of that, especially where presumably you're not like, you know, sending a direct text to all 130,000 people? Like, how do you actually propagate those messages? So you start with the command team. So the literally the first day, I think the, the 10th of December, 
And then the following Monday or within the week, first couple, three days, I actually put together a brief. Here are my principles. Here are my thoughts. And it was a PowerPoint slide, but I also presented it with the group that was local. And since we're all over, and then we also had a VTC. So all the command teams that could dial in were dialed into my um, my first day brief, as well as the staff, you know, the, the MedCom and Surgeon General staff. Then it was, it was a bit of a radical direction for some individuals because my focus on the expeditionary piece, you know, only a small percentage of our folks are really kind of in the kick the door down type of medicine where they're out in the far reaches. And so most of our, you know, again, 30,000 civilians, we were based in hospitals like civilian hospitals, so they couldn't quite see themselves in that. And so I made sure that everyone could see themselves. So I said, if we don't get this right, and it's a picture of a, of a medical person taking care of a wounded soldier, it doesn't matter what else we get right. So if we can't, if we can't do that, it really doesn't matter what else we do. So right then, there could have been, you know, everyone could have been lost saying, well, I'm, I'm a civilian pharmacist at a hospital. I never go anywhere. So I don't see myself in that. That was slide one of two. The next slide was, and we won't get that right. I had the same picture unless we get all of this right. And I, and I made sure we had every single aspect of what we do. We had civilians. We had, you know, our dental corps. We had vet corps. We had our research individuals. We had our military treatment facilities and we had our, our center and school, which is our training. So I try to get a, a collage of, you know, so everyone understood you are all part of getting, you know, the soldier downrange ready to treat someone who might be injured. And so I challenge folks to trace back to see where you fit in this. And everyone does. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't exist. I mean, all 130,000 folks are there for a reason and we, and they have to remember why they exist. Um, and so it was, it was that. And then of course it went out through the email system. And then I rely upon my commanders the subordinate commanders then to relay that intent to their formations. And then as the farther down it goes, it becomes more granular on how they operationalize those words. What feedback did you get on that? Good feedback. Again, it was the the expeditionary piece was kind of, you know, folks were wondering, it'll take me a bit to wrap my head around to see how I fit. But then once we actually put a campaign plan, you know, and it's it's short, it's, it's like 17 pages. I said, make sure it's lots of pictures, right? Not so many words, but because if it's too long, so you know, people will actually flip through. And they will. And so there's four lines of effort, you know, what we do, you know, taking care of our, you know, beneficiaries, those who, who rely upon us, being ready, you know, readiness is a focus. So there are four major things that we need to do as an organization to operationalize that and every person way to contribute to each one of those lines of effort. I'd love to zoom out to talk a little bit just more broadly about how women are faring in the Army right now. How is it different for women than it was when you started? Well, it's been a, again, I like the term evolution because um, I think things are great. Um, I think we're doing very well, in a word, compared to my older sisters who were wax in the Women's Army Corps. So they joined the late 60s, early 70s, where women were actually in their own separate branch. They didn't train with the, with the male soldiers. They were very, very limited into the occupational specialties that they could serve. So it was kind of a dual track, um, limited opportunities. And then fast forward, you know, 1976, the summer of 76, when female um, cadets, first time ever in the, you know, since 1802 when West Point was established, to the point now where last year, or before even last year, but the first African-American female first captain, uh, meaning the top cadet at West Point, you know, Simone Askew. So that's just, just think of that from... A whack to 
being a cadet. Then now we've opened all of our occupational specialties to those that were women were excluded from with combat exclusion. So we've got infantry soldiers that are women. So we have ranger school graduates. And so that's uh, one of those things that uh, was excluded again from women. So now we're up to like, I think 13 or more. I don't, I don't know the exact number, but you heard about the first three. Now you don't even hear about it anymore because we're getting more and more. And so I think the the ability for, for women to advance is uh, greater than ever. Do you think that that sense of pride about that kind of integration and, and social progress that comes from the importance of the work applies to bringing women into the pipeline as well and, and bringing women more into combat roles? Like, Does that story become part of that larger story of what the military does? Or does it apply less? Because you know I think the military was ahead of society at large in terms of race and ethnicity and probably class and probably behind society at large a bit in terms of the gender numbers, right? Is that a fair right. assessment? Um, I, I think so. And again, in an all-volunteer force, um, so right now it's about 17% of the force um, are women. Um, but then some women choose not to, to serve. And that's, uh, and that's uh, great about our nation. You don't, you don't have to. But as far as equal work for equal pay for those who did, you know, so there, we had women, Apache helicopter pilots, for, for years, you know, which is, you know, a combat role. Um, we've had women in the field artillery, you know, military intelligence, military police. So we've had women integrated in many roles, and slowly they, they were opening up more and more roles. Um, and so it's been a, again, it's been a progression because the, the combat exclusion, that's kind of like an old linear battlefield where, you know, you have people line up, you know, I see you, you see me, I shoot you, you shoot, you know, lob something over at me. It's not like that anymore. There's no forward edge of the battlefield. There's every opportunity in all areas, even in the cyber domain now, um, to be uh, engaged by an adversary. So this whole combat exclusion discussion went away So because women are you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're all over the, the battlefield, so to speak. And so I think it's now that we've opened up all specialties it's, you know, this is the greatest opportunity ever available to for those who who are able to. And so it's not for, hey, I'd like to try that. It's like you can if you meet the qualification and here they are. So they're it's very transparent, it's very published of what it is for everyone. There's some men that can't meet the standard and they don't, they don't go that route. Um, there are women that can't meet the standard and they don't either. Is there an institutional sense of like we got to work to catch up or it's great that we've made this progress. Maybe there's no one collective view, but I'm curious about how it's kind of worked its way into the Army's narrative about itself. I think it's, you know, from the top down, it's working into the the narrative because I think our, um, not only our Army, but, you know, society business has shown that diverse groups are more intelligent groups. And so this is just a population that's, you know, that needs to be incorporated into the team. So I think there's always going to be a separate narrative since we're still so few. There were only 17% of the force and I know I've heard someone said that there's a tipping point if you have such a percentage of, you know, in any group that you no longer see them as, you know, unique or it's not odd that, oh, there, there's a woman, there's one, you know, like in the cadets when you back in the day when there's only 100 in a class of, you know, of 800, there was. But there's a tipping point where you get a, a certain percentage that's part of the team that it's no longer something that you think about. It gets to a place where you can begin to take it for granted. Right. Not quite there yet, yeah. but uh, I think we're getting there. The rise of women in the military is making me wonder about the question of trans people serving in the military. And obviously, as someone who's overseeing medical care, that must be something that arises for you. Is that something that you think the military will be able to make progress on? So now that's a policy question. And I don't want to 
don't want to get in in front of the uh, you know the Secretary of Defense and uh, the senior leadership on that. Um, the only thing I can say from a medical perspective is whatever um, we are asked to do and whoever we are asked to take care of, we will do it to the utmost of our ability and treat everyone with dignity and respect, um, no matter what their gender, what their sexual preference is, any of the you know they're, they're human beings that uh, when we see them, either they they are in good health and need to maintain it or they are in failing health and we need to treat them and help them. And it doesn't matter who you are and what you are. We just need to understand what we need to do to provide you the best care that we can. And that's what we do. And so, um, and we have. And so that's when we'll continue to do that. What advice would you give to a young woman who was considering joining up? I would say go for it. Um, You will never have an experience like serving in the military. Um, what you learn as far as about yourself, what you can do, what you maybe thought you could never do. It's, it's a very, um, it's challenging and it challenges you to, to your limits, which is a good thing, I think, because you, people don't realize how strong they are. I hear so many people, I can never do that. And, uh, ones who thought they couldn't end up, you know, proving to themselves that they can. So it's, you grow, you learn about leadership. Um, you learn about being responsible for someone other than yourself, then you're exposed, as I mentioned before, you're exposed to people from all different walks of life, and you learn about people that you never would have, um, if you, you know, in your own choosing. Potentially, I mean, you may. I mean, a lot of people do, but as well traveled as we are, not only within the United States but other countries, learning about other cultures. I don't think you can be exposed to others and not gain some empathy for other people. It's not those people anymore. You know, there's an instant camaraderie that you gain by serving. And um, and then, of course, you learn that whatever skill set uh, that you're, you know, what, whether military occupational specialty. So you're learning something as well. So I would say go for it. It's, uh, it's an awesome experience. That's why I stayed so long. Gosh, my whole adult life. Thank you so much, uh, General West. It's been a pleasure to hear how you think about these things. Well, thanks so much. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Appreciate you inviting me. And that's our show. Our producer is Jessica Jupiter. We had additional editorial support from Cleo Levin and June Thomas. You can email us at womenincharge@slate.com with comments, feedback, or suggestions for women we should interview. And please don't forget to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll talk to you next week.